as long as you can remember, you've probably heard warnings to parents telling them to make sure they check their kids' Halloween candy for things like razor blades, drugs, or other objects. Maybe you yourself have gone through the bag before your kids start their feeding frenzy. But what are the odds that somebody actually put a razor blade or poison into Halloween candy? Is this something that actually happens, or is it just a myth? On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we examine whether Halloween is more trick than treat. We speak to Dr. Joel Best of the University of Delaware, who has studied Halloween sadism, and examine how true some of these stories actually are. Here are your hosts, Haley Cheng, Craig Needles, and Patrick Magermans. Halloween sadism is the idea that a stranger would purposely try to hurt trick-or-treaters by adding poisons or sharp objects to their candy or other baked goods. A lot of contemporary legends are, are like this. A lot of war, uh, contemporary legends are stories that say, well, you know, there are uh, kidnappers lurking in shopping malls or gang members uh, hiding behind, you know, in your back seat or, you know, uh, things like that. They don't have to have any real substance. Uh, they make good stories and they're repeated and they're told again and again and again. And, you know, I think that's all this is. So, Craig, you actually did some of the math to kind of figure out how this, you know, how much candy is actually contaminated. Yeah, I did. And here are the numbers. I looked at Stats Canada and I looked at the United States government websites and according to their general estimates over the last five to six years, somewhere between 11 and 12% of the population have been kids who have gone trick-or-treating. So I extrapolated that back to 1958. There may have been a few more, a few less given the year, given birth rates, but let's just say 11.5% across the board. That means there have been 2.1 trillion trick-or-treating trips since 1958, and there have been 200 instances of tampered candy. So if you adjust things a little bit and, and do the math, that means that there's about a 1 in 11 million chance that a trick-or-treating trip you go on would result in you bringing home tampered candy. That includes various instances, which we'll get to later, which appear to be manufacturer error where items get into a chocolate bar or a piece of candy or whatever it happens to be that have nothing to do with Halloween sadism. So your odds of actually being the victim of Halloween sadism are far, far less than one in 11 million. And with the odds being that low, how did this all begin? Trick-or-treating is not as old as you think it is. Uh, it, it really becomes widespread after the Second World War. And in some ways, it's an anti-delinquency measure. Uh, people were, uh, Halloween had traditionally been adolescent boys uh, uh, committing minor acts of violence, tipping over outhouses and things like that. And uh, so uh, they, uh, uh, there were communities that tried to organize uh, trick-or-treating and uh, they didn't invent the idea, but they, they really popularized it. And almost as soon as this happens, you start getting stories of uh, mean people. Uh, you know, you, this, the, you know, I had a friend who was older than I was uh, who had heard stories as a little girl that, uh, uh, you know, uh, there were people who would heap pennies on a skillet and then bring them over and pour them into the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters. And uh, uh, so that was kind of the version that was out there in the early 1950s. And uh, 
the idea that there are people who are contaminating treats, putting poison or uh, metal objects or sharp objects in candy uh, really becomes popular in the late 1960s and early 1970s. That's when it, you know, it really kind of peaks. One of the most famous cases is the Houston Candyman. He's considered the man that ruined Halloween because he poisoned pixie sticks with cyanide. A guy named Ronald O'Brien who uh, poisoned his son in the uh, early 1970s. He lived in, in uh, a suburb of Houston. And um, he, uh, I think that he'd, he'd obviously heard the story. He never confessed to this crime. He, he obviously had heard the story and uh, he... Uh, must have thought that, you know, their kids getting poisoned all over the country all the time. And, uh, you know, this would be the perfect crime. And he took out a life insurance policy and bought some poison and, and uh, you know, uh, contaminated the, the, the candy that he gave the kid. And uh, uh, his son died. And then he instantly reported to the police. And the police got very excited because they also had heard these stories and they assumed that you know, I guess we had one of these cases and they uh, uh, they announced that, you know, everybody ought to be very careful. Don't let your uh, kids eat their Halloween candy and so on. And then after a couple of days went by, they realized that there weren't any other kids who'd gotten poison candy and that um, and they found out that O'Brien had taken out this uh, insurance policy and, and poisoned his son. He, they wound up arresting him and uh, uh, he never confessed to the crime, but he was uh, 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 you know, tried, convicted, uh, and eventually it being Texas, uh, executed uh, for the crime. But, you know, again, it's not that he's the one that kicks this off because this story is already widespread. In fact, if it hadn't been widespread, I don't think it would have occurred to him uh, to commit the crime. So what happened was two months before his son's death, this guy O'Brien called a friend who was a chemist and asked about how he could get cyanide and how much of that he would need to make it a fatal dose for someone. A chemical salesman also testified at O'Brien's trial. He tried to purchase potassium cyanide, O'Brien did, uh, but the only size they had available was the typical bulk size of five pounds. So because I guess he was being economically efficient, O'Brien backs out of the sale. That's the problem with potassium cyanide. You can really only buy it in bulk. That's sense. true. It's harder to find the, the, the smaller individualized packages that, oh, we, uh, that we all hope to not acquire. Not through a lab, too. you got to go through an assassin or And, and look, th this is not going to be a podcast about the death penalty, obviously. Maybe we'll do that someday. But for now, I will say, even though I don't personally like the death penalty, if you're going to give it to someone, may I suggest the person you give it to is the guy who poisons his son in order to collect the insurance. This is a little messed up, but I was like looking into the story and people were saying that because I think they died. He died from injection. Mm -hmm. um, people were like, they should have given him a pixie stick with cyanide in it. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> that's, they, a, that's they, a little. I, I don't, yeah, if, if that's going to fly anywhere, Texas is the place. But sadly, that's uh, that's not the way it went. Nonetheless. People have been checking their kids' Halloween candy for tampered with candy because, oh, someone in the neighborhood is going to try to poison you for 40, 50 years because of basically this one particular story. Yeah. And although this case drew kind of widespread attention to the, the whole idea of Halloween sadism, um, the act of poisoning candies and chocolates and other trick-or-treat snacks actually did happen before. There's a, uh, uh, there's a case in New York. Uh, and someplace on Long Island, I think, where there's a woman in the middle 1960s who gets irritated 
that kids who she thinks are too old to be trick-or-treating teenagers are coming around and, and she puts little clearly marked uh, uh, packets of, of ant poison in, in the bags that they hold out. And she actually gets in some trouble. I think she got, she actually got arrested uh, uh, for doing that. But, you know, I don't think that she's the first person, you know, and I don't think that really inspires a lot of people. Um, you know, this becomes just a, a widespread story. Uh, people start to circulate. That woman's name is Helen Fire. In 1964, she also gave bags containing steel wool, dog biscuits, and insect traps. She really wanted to get the kids. She would have just erased the trap part and gave to the kids as insects. That's the, the real advertising part of it. Well, if you listen to a previous episode of the 519 podcast, you can hear that insects actually can be quite delicious and nutritious. Mm, pan roasted. Yeah. Another famous case is the one of William V. Shine, who handed out laxative-laced candies to trick-or-treaters in 1959, um, which resulted in 30 kids becoming ill. He actually got in really big trouble for this, too. He went, went to court, a lawsuit. He was charged with ruining 30 pairs of underwear. One of the most dastardly crimes of all time. And listen, you know, we, we joke about it now, but this happened, you know, when, 60 years ago, and, and, and some people had some tummy troubles for a few days. Uh, but at the same time, this guy was just some misguided dentist who thought that there was too much candy consumption going on because of Halloween. And this was his, uh, again, misguided way of trying to fight back against it. Not what I would have done if I was passionate about uh, tooth decay. So how often are these cases actually real? My research does cover Canada. And, and you know, I, so occasionally I'll get a Canadian uh, report of a case and I can't find any evidence that anybody in Canada has been hurt. There have been three or four other cases where um, a child would die and uh, there'd be a report that, oh, he must have gotten poisoned Halloween candy. And then uh, subsequent investigations would conclude that, no, this was uh, uh, some sort of medical condition or uh, uh, in one case, a little boy got into his uncle's stash of heroin or, you know, so something like that. And, the, you know, the the this, the announcement that that. Uh, uh, these crime, this this crime has occurred is always you know way up in the front of the newspaper and the uh, uh, report that it's been debunked is is always getting less less coverage a couple of days later. So for starters, I'm shocked and appalled to hear that somebody may have not told the truth on social media and made things seem different than they actually are. Um, no, that's that, that's not true. But it, it's not something that should shock anybody. What would or should shock somebody if it were to occur was the idea of someone poisoning or putting a razor blade into some sort of Halloween tree and giving them out. They'd have no idea who they're giving it to. They have no idea when that person's going to eat it, if they're going to eat it, any of that stuff. It goes far beyond a standard prank. It's just violence for the sake of violence. Now, is this possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. And that speaks to the numbers we were talking about earlier when we were looking at 1 in 11 million, right? And the candy they tampered with was so obvious. I mean, the razor blades and the apples were sticking straight out. The nails and the chocolate bars were right running out the ends. They're, they were pretty bad at tampering with candy. There are no William Shines, the, the laxative bandit there. <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently he's the, he's the brown standard in this. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to a different case, shall we? So how does this fear begin? Joel Best kind of explains how the paranoia driven by cultural anxieties of the time created this fear. I personally believe that uh, the reason this really got going in the late 1960s and early 1970s is that uh, 
uh, people were very anxious about the future. And, you know, if you think about it, we're, we're constantly hearing about things. You know, there's, there's uh, the danger of war. You know, what about nuclear winter? What about uh, uh, an Ebola epidemic? What about uh, global uh, financial collapse? Uh, what about climate change? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't do anything about any of this stuff. Okay. And so there's, there's a lot of anxiety about the future. And children are sort of the walking, talking future. And uh, what you can do is you can, by golly, make sure that your kids' can tre treats aren't contaminated, okay? Mm -hmm. And it gives you a sense of, of, of sort of agency. Now, this takes new forms at, at, you know, at different times. So that uh, uh, the most dramatic example that I've seen is in the aftermath of 9-11, which, of course, happened, you know, uh, five, six weeks before Halloween, um, uh, the... Uh, uh, there were a lot of stories about, uh, you know, don't go to the mall. You know, there, there, there were warnings from, from Afghanis that you shouldn't go to the mall on Halloween, which is where people go to go trick-or-treating. Well, they won't be safe this year. Or, uh, you know, uh, there are uh, uh, stories of kids getting uh, homemade baked goods uh, from uh, uh, Muslim households that have... Uh, you know, uh, terrorist messages in them or, or things like that. Um, and, you know, th those stories didn't last, uh, but they were, you know, they were in the aftermath of 9-11, they were kind of big. Um, in recent years, the United States, uh, uh, since uh, Colorado became the first state to legalize uh, marijuana products, uh, you've, uh, the year after that, there started to be warnings that people would be distributing uh, THC infused candy, you know, gummy bears or whatever with, uh, with uh, you know, intoxicating marijuana chemicals in it. Um, and um, this comes up every couple of years. This is a big year. I'm, I'm actually doing a bunch of these interviews this year. Most of them are, are telling me, you know, asking me about the danger of THC. And, uh, you know, we've been worrying about this for, I don't know, seven or eight years in the United States. I've yet to see a report of anybody who's, who's uh, any child who's been injured this way. Uh, you know, uh, people tell me that uh, uh, edible marijuana is incredibly expensive. And, you know, so it probably, you know, would be kind of a costly prank to perpetrate. And, you know, I don't think there's probably like going to be anything to that either. Uh, but it just becomes the newest wrinkle to, uh, you know, sort of give new life to an old story. I've also been told by people that edible marijuana is expensive. It's just in my case, those people are cashiers. So clearly this would be a very, very expensive prank to pull off and a prank that you wouldn't even get to see the results of. You have no idea where your marijuana is going. It's not something you'd be able to know. Oh, I'm going to get this particular kid high or that particular kid high. It, it's dangerous, but I just don't see that being something that any sort of logical and reasonable person is going to do. And this is why, as Dr. Best told us, there have never been any actual reports of this happening. It says a lot about our post-pandemic economic recovery when parents are worried about their kids getting $10 candies. That's know. a good point. It's, it's kind of it's hopeful. If, if someone wants to give out $10 worth of candy to every kid that comes through uh, that comes through their neighborhood trick-or-treating, well, perhaps they should just give out, like, you know, the, the, the big cases of caramel bars or whatever it happens to be. And it's uh, a... 
Well, I was gonna say it's a big opportunity for the kids too. I mean, you you collect a few of these ten dollar edibles, you're you're yeah, in business. You re- and then you know you gang up with a few kids from the neighborhood, form a little kitty cartel. You're you're making you're making money. The lemonade stand is a thing of the past. Oh. It is now the kids riding the marijuana stand at the side of the road every November. Uh, the question is. Is this something that ever actually happens? Does it, does it really exist? And based, every piece of logic and every piece of data we have would point to no, it does not happen. Another question is also how have communities been combating this candy contamination? There was a time when hospitals, uh, local hospitals, were uh, offering to x ray treats. And uh, then uh, they got worried about liability because, of course, the x rays wouldn't detect poison. And so I'm not sure if anybody's still doing that, but for a time they were doing that. Uh, There are lots of uh, church congregations that will uh, host uh, trunk or treating events where people uh, park in the church parking lot and they decorate the trunks in their cars and then open them up. The kids can go uh, from car to car. And, you know, of course, no one in the congregation would poison children. So that's safe. Uh, Or there are lots of malls uh, that uh, will... um, Uh, say, well, you can come to the mall, it's a safe, well-lit place, and you can come in. And so there's actually research on this that suggests that Halloween is the most dangerous holiday in the annual calendar in terms of children's emergency room admissions, okay? And the second one in the United States is the 4th of July, because, of course, people are, are, uh, you know, playing with firecrackers and things like that. Um, And and the reason Halloween is dangerous is that... uh, uh, we send tens of millions of kids out into the dark that night. And, um, you know, bad things happen to a few of them. Uh, uh, they uh, get hit by cars. Uh, they get tangled up in their costumes and fall down. Uh, they can't see in their masks and fall down. So there are various kinds of injuries that occur. They, they, the, the people who are showing up in the emergency room are not, have not been poisoned. You know, uh, they're not bleeding from the uh, wounds inflicted by razor blades and apples or anything like that. But, you know, uh, police departments will uh, 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 typically do a kind of public service thing where they will uh, list a uh, set of uh, Halloween safety tips. And the safety tips are don't let your kid go trick or treating with an open flame. You know, don't let them carry a candle. Uh, you know, uh, make sure that they aren't going to trip over their costume, make sure they can see out of their mask, you know, and then there's always, um, you know, inspect your kids treats for signs of tampering when you get home. You know, it, you know, it, it doesn't hurt anything to tell people that it, um, uh, you know, it, it probably is more important to make sure they can see out of their masks, but you know, uh, you know, that's that's what's going on. So nobody does very much about this. And the reason they don't do very much about it is it, it doesn't exist. OK, I mean, you know, it's, you know, um, you know, the media can't be blamed for this because the media doesn't cover this. The reason the media doesn't cover this is there aren't any stories about it and so on. That's exactly why you don't hear a lot about it in the media. And even the idea of weighting those two things of equal importance. Hey, make sure that your kid knows the rules of the road, is not too excited and running around all over the place on Halloween night. And make sure to check your kid's candy for tampering at the end of the night. Those two things are not of equal importance. One is far, 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 far more likely to be a concern than the other one. It's interesting because like even when we were researching, it was like we couldn't find any like pop culture references, like movies really that much talking about it. We couldn't find anything other than like blog posts by like some like mommy blog, you know, Mm -hmm. talking about this issue. Yeah. 
and it, that's the that's the reason is because there just isn't a lot to base it off of, and every single one of these that you know becomes a national story every November second or or something along those lines is, hey, did you know that this person in this particular city had uh, had this happen to their candy? By November fifth, doesn't get as many clicks, doesn't get as many eyeballs, but by November fifth, we find out, oh wait a minute, this was an inside job. My own feeling is that it's an absolutely terrific thing to be afraid of. It, it's in some ways, it's the best thing in the world to be afraid of because you're you're envisioning that someone down the block from you, uh, one of your neighbors, is so crazy that one night a year they will poison candy to harm little children at random. But they're so tightly wrapped that they only do it one night a year. And so if you're worried about this, it's really easy to ward off this danger. You know, don't let your kids go trick-or-treating, okay? Take them to the mall to go trick-or-treating. Go to the church parking lot and go trunk-or-treating. Um, uh, some communities used to have, I don't know if anybody's still doing this, uh, used to x-ray uh, treats uh, to look for razor blades. Uh, uh, you know, you can go with your children when they go trick-or-treating. You can only take them to houses that you know. You can inspect all their treats when they come home, whatever you want to do, whatever makes you feel good. And then, you know, on November 1st, when the family gathers around the breakfast table, you count noses and you say, wow, we're all here. We don't have to worry about that for 364 more days. Okay, I mean, what a great thing to be worried about. Uh, it, you know, it's completely manageable. And so it lets you feel like you're being a good, responsible parent and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, protecting your children. And, uh, you know, that's, it makes you feel good. Uh, and, you know, when Halloween rolls around again, why people, you know, will start talking about the dangers of this and you can uh, protect them again if you want. Now that we and Joel Bust have kind of fact-checked all of these different stories, what are some of your takeaways? I look at this, and as a parent, I think to myself, I'm far, far, far more concerned with the actions that go on during trick-or-treating by my kids than I am concerned about the idea of some neighbor putting something they shouldn't into my kids' candy. And not that I wasn't before, but... This research has helped me realize that I was uh, right to be far more concerned with what happens Halloween night as opposed to what might happen in the days following as we go through the Halloween candy. And I have a really big takeaway as well, maybe the biggest, is that we've been letting those crook candy companies off the hook <laughs> for years that have been dropping shrapnel and nails and careless factory work. Well, here's what I will say to that. On Halloween sadism. You're absolutely right, because we look at some of these stories and, oh, this particular ch chocolate bar, I'm not going to use a brand, but this particular chocolate bar was wrapped up perfectly and there was a hunk of metal inside. Hershey's. That was not someone who was putting metal in the chocolate bars. A neighbor that was, would have to go digging in a, in a trash site to find some metal. Yeah. That's just too much work. There's a lot of work. And then you have to reseal the candy properly, which they weren't <laughs> doing. Unless, of course, this was a chunk of metal or something that was in the chocolate bar at the manufacturing point, less so than at the candy tampering point pre-trick-or-treating. So it's almost like they have a get-out-of-bad-manufacturing-policy-free card that they have uh, used whenever this sort of thing comes up at Halloween, which, unsurprisingly, is their busiest sales time of the year. 
And I do feel bad for all the people that have been waking up at 6 a.m. every October 31st to start baking goods to hand out to kids in the neighborhood. You know, I feel they bad, go, too. They go straight into the garbage can. I feel bad, too. And and if you're listening and, uh, and my kids come to your door on October 31st, feel free to give us baked goods. We may have a few questions, but everything <laughs> should be okay. I read on a blog that um, there's this family who does wake up every morning, bake, like, October 31st to bake, make baked goods and they actually will put their their treats in a little bag with their their with their name and address so that people can go and be like okay this is where it came from. That's and that kind of gives gives a little bit a sense of I don't know like legit legitimacy. Accountability. There's yeah. an accountability that yeah. hey no one is going to be poisoning kids or putting razor blades in something for kids to eat while also putting their address on the very thing. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also did a little bit of blog reading and I found one a unverified media outlet in the United States said that this year what people should really be worrying about is finding needles in their kids' candy vaccinations. They said specifically from the Democratic households. I don't know. <laughs> Beware, your kids might get COVID vaccines for, for Halloween. No. We can't cite that article, can yeah. we? Uh, no, I don't think InfoWars has, uh, has a lot of traction. I think it's from The Onion, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good article. There was that, that sound like a good that video that you, you put in our notes, too, that the liberal, the liberal households are going to yeah. vaccinate your kids. I it know. was like a whole video. <laughs> That's a real band. It's a Halloween. Those yeah. liberals trying to vaccinate. Everyone. Could you imagine someone yeah. wanting to make sure kids don't die of COVID nineteen? The Halloween sadism has hit a new rock bottom. Oh my God! Vaccinations. It's an interesting thing. I, I I didn't study this intending to have a part time job for the rest of my life. You know, but it's it's sort of seasonal work. I I I I've been giving the same interview basically since nineteen eighty five, and uh, uh, you know it it lives on and. You know, it's taught me a certain amount of humility because I've been on TV, I've been in magazines, I've been in newspapers, you know, I've been in podcasts and web uh, websites and, and all kinds of things. And yet the story lives on and you realize that a, a contemporary legend is just harder to kill than a werewolf. This episode of the 519 Podcast was hosted by Haley Chang, Craig Needles, and Patrick Magermans. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.